0: guys, welcome to another insightful episode of Martechno a specially curated podcast powered by Netcore Club. Here is where we talk to leading product champions and growth practitioners and gain some really interesting insights through their thoughts, their stories around all things product. I'm your host, Mayuri. Joining me today is a very, very special guest, Udayan Valvekar, who's currently building a full stack growth team to drive product-led growth across all business lines of Razorpay. And Udian is also the co-founder of GrowthX, a cohort-based learning community with a vision to empower individuals with the right approach towards product and growth. Now the community has top folks from startups like Swiggy, Zomato, the likes of Paytm, Google, Cred, Flipkart, Zoho, Big Basket, Freshworks, you name it and you got it. And as someone who's also been a part of the community, I can tell you that it's an amazingly safe place to learn and grow. So warm welcome, Udiyan. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Really glad to have you join me today.
1: Thank you so much for that uh, really warm welcome, Ayuri. Um, And also like, it's great to have you on board in the community as well. Uh, you know, it's folks like you that make the community a great place. So thank you for having me here.
0: Awesome, Udiyan. Awesome. And you know, right before I jump into any of my questions and the serious conversation, I have to tell our listeners about some very interesting things about you. Your passion about cycling. So, to all our listeners, um, Udiyan is an avid cyclist. In fact, he's going off to a cycling expedition very soon to the mountains in the coming month. And more interestingly, at just the age of 24, Udiyan has cycled to the highest motorable road in the world. You know, that's around 18,000 feet, if I'm not wrong, Udiyan.
1: Yeah, thanks for uh, putting me on the spot about cycling. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I. I think cycling for me, it has a special place for sure. Uh, and it is definitely very high by the way, that 18,000 feet. Um, yeah. just for comparison, uh, the highest peak, um, in Europe is something mm-hmm. like 13,000 feet. And that's a peak wow. right? Whereas yeah. our, like at home in our country itself, we have the highest motorable road, which is at 18,000 feet. It's phenomenal. The natural beauty that we have is just
0: insane. Wow. Wow. That's, you know, that just inspires me to pack my bags and and probably go off to a trip to the mountains somewhere.
1: Do tag along. Uh, <laughs> I love the mountains. Mountains is like yeah. a second home for me, uh, right? But like cycling is like especially close to me. I think um, it's taught me like a lot of things. A lot yeah.
0: of. Quick question again, before we dive into, you know, a serious conversation, Yudi. Why cycling? What got you started? What's kept you going?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I started cycling, uh, obviously we all started cycling when we were super young, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but um, I started cycling again, I would say. Um, I was going through like a pretty rough phase in my life. I was overweight, uh, in wow. general, not a lot of things going on well. Mm. And what I noticed is like, when as I was cycling better and better uh, to like, obviously start to lose weight,
0: mm. I also
1: started getting a lot better at life in general. Like when I say life in general, I mean like you know, you're getting more disciplined, you're like thinking clearer Absolutely. and like, I, you know, w- like if I can summarize my experience with cycling, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Like, you know, I've cycled like crazy distances, etc. but cycling is such a mental game, cycling, mm-hmm. running, swimming or life in general is such a mental yeah. game. Like, you know, there's been times when I'm okay, let's say I'm cycling, let's say uh, hundred or 200 or 300 kilometers. And I feel yeah. like at the 70th kilometer, I'm done. Like, yeah. I do not have any strength to go further. And then I cycle another 200 after that. And yeah. we've all had some kind of an experience in our life in general. When we thought that, you know what, this is our max. But yeah. looking back now, we yeah. see, okay, wow, that was such a, like, you know, our capacity is so much more.
0: Yeah,
1: That's something that you know, cycle cycling teaches you a lot more. And that's why it's like super close to me. Uh,
0: For least. sure. For sure. And I also think the... That rush of feelings that you get, you know, when you've achieved that extra two hundred kilometers, um,
1: mm-hmm. I
0: think nothing beats that. That's the that's the most joyful you probably would ever feel, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think yeah. <laughs> I think uh, joyful and relieved, <laughs> relieved. <Yeah. laughs> relieved that you're but done. But then
0: you have to cycle back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So,
0: yeah,
1: I think uh, yeah yeah yeah, but yeah, I think like. Uh, cycling is amazing man it also helps you travel by the way like I also mm. like running but for folks like who are like trying to like get into some kind of a healthy routine cy- the thing I like about cycling is when you're cycling you're actually also like kind of slowly like going for a long drive kind of or a traveling thing right it's really yeah. nice really soothing it's like meditation yeah, yeah.
0: actually I, I, I agree even though I'm not an average cyclist but I do agree with the with that you know the rush of feelings that you get when you accomplish something that you never thought you could right at, sure, at those difficult sure. moments for sure awesome for sure. awesome so inspiring probably mm-hmm. will get me to buckle up and probably start cycling i don't know <laughs> <laughs> can't commit to that but yeah yep. um um okay let's dive in now uh let's let's talk about the amazing work that you folks are doing with Growtex. i i've been a part of the community uh we've been hearing a lot around um uh, Uh, the terms around growth, et cetera, right? Um, We'd love to hear your thoughts about building successful growth teams, but we'll take a step back. Um, Let's start and let's expand, if you could help us expand on what are growth teams, you know, what do they really constitute?
1: Okay, so I'll give you like a definition of growth team. Uh, Like I think anyone can Google definition of growth team, but on a lighter note, uh, realistically, what a growth team, at least to me, is it's essentially a small startup within a startup right and as funny as it might sound uh, mm-hmm. what like some of the really good things about like early stage startups is that everyone is so well communicated everyone's working as an integrated unit there yeah. are no barriers of org structure there is no like marketing design teams or whatever right group yeah. teams are essentially like SWAT teams of a company that like you'll have a designer, you'll have a marketer, you'll have a data person, you'll have a product person, you'll have multiple, right? If you're a dunzo, then you'll have an operations person inside your uh, growth team. But they're all essentially focused to delivering the best product value to your customers as fast as they can, right? Right. And that to me is like the best definition of a growth team. Right,
0: right, interesting. And when we also talk about growth teams, Why are these teams becoming more and more important within OBS, would you say?
1: Yeah, I think uh, there's such a big shift that's happening um, inside of like the way our like consumers, like ourselves, Mm. right? The way we are choosing the products that we want to, the way Mm. that we choose our apps, the ones that we want to keep using again and again. It's no longer like, oh, I saw that billboard hoarding or because of like some marketing campaign, am I actually kind of using it? It's a lot more to do with how is... uh, How is that product, you know, delivering value to me? Uh, when is it delivering value to me? How is it communicating with me? Right. All of those factors typically are kind of like owned by the growth team itself. Right. They're like essentially owning the experience of the product in terms of driving maximum value as fast as possible. And as this shift keeps happening, by the way, uh, Mm. in our country, in the, in the world, whatever, the more and more growth teams are going to keep rising. Right. Right. Um, That's. And I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg with growth mm. teams right now.
0: Mm. Interesting, interesting. And and since you've been doing this Odeon, what have been some challenges that you've seen, you know, you've faced in actually hiring talent to build these growth teams from scratch?
1: Oh, wow. I think in general, hiring in startups is hard, right? I think <laughs> we can true. all agree. Yeah. <laughs> will, it's so hard uh, <laughs> to uh, hire, like, I think uh, uh, a person in your team With growth teams, even more hard because number one, uh, such a new, uh, it's just, I think, been uh, not more than three, four years since it's kind of like, you know, starting to picking up uh, and talent just does not exist. But more than the talent, right, Mm -hmm. I think the biggest challenge around growth teams is that growth has still looked like, oh, there's a lone hacker that will come along. And unfortunately, that's been fantasized online as well. So when you're looking to hire, though, it's a different ball game. I don't think people mm. ever. Most people never ha- hire hackers. They are just probably <laughs> there on social media, right? Uh, yeah. But the fundamental problem with hiring in growth teams is finding the right talent, and absolutely, in a, it's, in, it's a needle in a haystack problem, uh, mm. to be honest with you. And mm. it's it's just it's just existing in pockets right now. And the second mm. thing about hiring in growth teams, <laughs> I think, is also internal most mm. companies themselves are not being able to figure out what exact growth person they need yeah
0: yeah
1: right I, it's it's crazy uh, but i i i hope we keep getting better at this at least in the last two three years things have improved right. um, but yeah um, yeah there's a long way to go
0: so true and just to kind of tie that back when you said you want would have a designer in your growth team, I would have probably never intuitively thought of having a designer as part of a growth team, right? So just that that kind of shows you the mindset <laughs> that's that you're trying to change, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, that's yeah. that's
1: that's another thing. You know, whenever people ask me if they yeah. need a growth designer, hey, do you need a growth designer? I'm mm-hmm. like, Yeah, only if you want your business to be successful, like, you know. So interesting. Uh yeah. because okay, so it's I think in most of the organizations that I've worked with, my second or second person or the third person in the team right after the tech person is a designer mm-hmm. and what do design growth designers typically are uh, you know designing clearer experiences that you know they'll help users uh, you know act quickly get yeah. get to that value faster right and you might yeah. think that okay let's save time by not designing these things or like removing the details mm-hmm. but it can actually add weeks to the process because your now users are taking a lot more time to get that value Right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That real value. So,
0: yeah.
1: yeah, Devil's
0: in the details. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we've come to the stage where, Hey, we figured out how to get, uh, we have a growth team in place. We're figuring out how to sort of look at the different levers of growth in our organization. Um, This team is mostly going to help us scale our engagement, our attention, ensure that onboarding is in place. Uh, here is where another interesting concept, which I want you to talk about comes in a one size fits all approach. Um, do you think there could be such an approach to building products for today? You know, there are so many different ICPs and personas. Who do you build for? You know, how do you even get started?
1: I think, uh, one thing to like note though, like if you're building for everyone, there's a saying that you're not building for anyone,
0: right? <laughs> when you build for yeah. everyone,
1: you don't build for anyone. Yeah. so yeah. uh the one size fits all approach is like um it's it's the reason why we okay so wh- because there are companies that did one size fits all approach that's why you have new startups <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> in that's in very in, true <laughs> coming and catering to niches though so for sure like you know it does yeah. not work uh, especially in product building but yeah. I think the second point of yours is quite interesting. When you said, hey, how do you account for those user personas? And how do you think about, uh, you know, building those new uh, product and feature lines just yeah. to establish, right? Let's take like a product that we are all like accustomed to. Let's take Swiggy, for example, right? Sure. And for Swiggy, uh, there are so many kinds of users. Yes. The job to be done for Swiggy is to get yeah. food delivered, right? From point A yeah. to point B, yes. but. I am a someone who might order salads, or and my sister, someone who likes snacks, maybe, or uh, another f- someone else wants to just have something quick and fast, right? Yeah. Or and someone just wants to have really safe, premium, uh, XYZ features. Now, yeah. for them, right? So you need to have in the initial days. What I would say is, fundamentally, try to figure out what's the biggest core value proposition of your product, right? Right. and for that core value proposition figure out what are the first two or three uh, personas that make up 80 percent of your users in the initial right. days and right. then kind of just build for them because in the in the beginning you're only building for a specific niche uh, making sure that your product is delivered well to them you're being able to give value but as mm-hmm. you keep scaling up right like for swiggy they can't have the same homepage for someone who's ordering salads and someone who wants something quick and fast. Right. If I'm ordering from, if I like cheap and fast, I'm going to see swiggy pop all the time. If I like salads, I'm not going to be recommended a Domino's pizza. Right.
0: Um,
1: (laughs) Hopefully. uh, Yeah. Right. Yeah. So as you keep scaling, I think uh, it gets a lot more important because you've solved the problem for 80%, hopefully. And that's why now you've, uh, you know, you're scaling up. Right. Uh, So that's how I think about it at least.
0: Right. So, If I had to summarize this, Udayan, would you agree that, um, you know, when a product is probably in the early stages or in the product market fit stages, we actually look at designing features for the top 80%. And then when we do reach that mature stage, we actually then start looking at my remaining 20% and catering to their needs. Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I think um, the first first initial days is just about making sure you're solving the problem for 80% of your users. And then the other... Uh, personas again become a zero to one, right? Absolutely. Once that 80% is solved, then incremental updates to kind of keep scaling it. The other products are usually where you would then, uh, like, you know, deep dive and focus on.
0: Absolutely, makes a lot of sense. And then that also then brings me to the next point that, Hey, when I am, I have gone ahead and designed my features for say the first 80% of my users. Now my job is to get them onto my product. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think here is where I'll plug in a very interesting concept that I know you love, which is cognitive biases. <laughs> right. Um, I've heard you talk about that, this with as much passion as I think, cycling, <laughs> I think <laughs> <plugging that. laughs> but, um, first up, what are cognitive biases?
1: Uh, I see. so so what are cognitive how do I say this nicely without not hurting all the people who are like (laughs) listening to us right Uh, no but I think uh, the best way to like explain cognitive biases right let's take a step back if we ask ourselves a question you know how do we take decisions right Mm. like in general in life Mm. most of us might answer either emotion or logic yeah but the actual right answer you'll be surprised that 90% of folks are actually taking decisions based on emotion and that's fine, even though you might say logic, by the way, once you (laughs) take a decision by logic, you're backing it up by emotion, Uh, sorry, I'm sorry, you are basically telling yourself that you know what, you know, this was logical, but your decision was actually emotional, Right. right?
0: right? And we see
1: this everywhere with everyone choosing a political side to uh, the left wing, right wing, devices we uh, order, yeah. the food we do, everything, right? So yeah. now let's come to cognitive biases. Cognitive biases are essentially 168 flaws in our minds uh, you wow. know, that we have or yeah. biases that we have that alter the way we take decisions, right? And yeah. we're all flawed uh, yeah. in some way or the other, right? And there are, and just like I just said at number 168 biases, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So. That's what cognitive biases are Um, Mm. and and, and the more people understand about cognitive biases, the better you can actually start taking decisions around like your product Mm. uh, taking marketing campaigns, designing flows in general, Mm. right? Super beneficial stuff.
0: Interesting. Interesting. We'll come to that, but I thought we should um, jazz this up a little. Let's do a quick rapid fire uh, around cognitive biases with you then. Three questions. Mm -hmm the quickest answers that you can give me, whatever comes to the top of your mind. All
1: right. right.
0: All Here right. we go. Uh, question number one. The most commonly used cognitive bias across products that you have used or you've, you know, interacted with?
1: Social proofing. <laughs> I think awesome.
0: That's, some, that's, yeah. Cool, cool. Question number two. According to you, the most powerful cognitive bias a product manager could really exploit?
1: Aha moments. In general, about... Uh, whether it. it's uh, delivering uh, magic moments to your team, to your hmm. developers, uh, to your designer, to your products, to your users, everyone. Aha moments. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, very powerful.
0: And the last question, your personal favorite cognitive bias?
1: The Pareto of principle, I think. The eighty twenty rule is something that I keep coming yeah. back to again and again and again and again in general uh, is awesome. You know, like 20% of things will drive 80% value, right? It's yeah. just mind boggling that no matter what we do, that's always going to be there for everything.
0: Very true. Very true. Yeah. A lot of fun. That was interesting, but uh, let's get back to the topic. And, um, I'll talk to you about one of my most, uh, at least the one cognitive bias that I find very intriguing, mm-hmm. uh, that's momentum behavior, you know, mm. and I'm tying it back to, uh, us building features for the 80% of users or the 20% of users. Um, The user comes to my product, but is inundated with options. Mm -hmm. And momentum behavior says that if your user has been doing a certain thing within a product, they will probably continue doing so. So if I was a Swiggy Pop user, I will continue looking at the Swiggy Pop section. I wouldn't even see there's a subway or there's a, uh, you know, there's a a dominoes available for me. Um, how do you solve for momentum behavior? You know, how do you kind of ensure that people actually engage with the newer features or the newer offerings in your in your product?
1: Right. So I think the first thing to understand over here is there is a reason why the user is, uh, you know, accustomed to a certain flow in your product. Number one, and that's right. most, obviously that's because they're getting value through it. And they've understood that this flow gives me value. Like they have trusted right. it, right? Yes. Now, now the job to be done over here is, how can we show users that there's a better way, right? Establishing, mm. it, help making them experience that's a better way. We can't say, hey, there's a better way, there's a better way, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's yeah. like, you know, our parents saying, there's a, you know, like telling us to do something, but we are not really like following that, right?
0: Absolutely. You need yes. to believe it. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'll give you a phenomenal example. I think um, there is a, when we, Let's talk about Trello. I think uh, Trello's mm. onboarding is pretty phenomenal. And I would mm. urge everyone to like go through it. What Trello is the OG of our coin ban boards, right? Everyone yeah. would do project management on Excel sheets before. And then they came up with an entire new flow, which you have to now drag and drop stuff. Right. In Trello's onboarding itself, they establish very quickly, right? Through the natural flow itself, they do a mm. mental model migration for you saying that, hey, now instead of, You know, setting these statuses, you can start dragging and dropping, right? Instead of Mm to-do lists, you can start managing your projects much better, right? Mm -hmm. Than it was. That establishment happens with users. I think that is the way I look at it, right? Mm -hmm. So for your products, now, if you know that there's a better way, how can Mm -hmm. you design, how can you make the user experience that flow as quickly and as fast as possible, right? It doesn't need to be the entire flow itself. It just needs to be a small part of it. That shows them, oh wow, okay, that's a new way I can do things better, right? That's yeah. the only way it's gonna happen.
0: Yeah, so then it would also tie into actually getting your user to their aha moment, you know, as as quickly as possible.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For Understood. sure, for
0: sure. Understood. Awesome. I think that that's that's very interesting. Um, but I'll I'll take the liberty to pivot a little, end um i wanted to talk to you about this entire concept of product-led growth that we've been hearing and reading and, and talking about you know all all this while um it's a, it's a quote unquote uh popular and unpopular topic that everybody likes talking about but what are your thoughts around it is plg really something that leads to better user engagement and retention over a period of time um you know what are your views around it
1: i Uh, Okay. So I'll give you a TLDR, right? So TLDR, uh, product led growth started not because company enforced uh, stuff on users. It's not like, okay, one company came and said that, you know what, we are going to try driving growth through the product. It Mm -hmm. actually happened because end customers nowadays, the way we behave is very, very different from, let's say, what we did early 2000s, right? You would call a salesperson up, hope that that salesperson knows the right answer or they're informative of the product and all of those things, right? Yeah. The behavioral shift in users is what is driving product-led growth. So 100% product-led growth is here to stay, right? It's, and... And let me tell you what product-led growth is not as well, right? So product-led growth does not mean that the product team is in charge. And then uh, the product team is making all the decisions in the thing. And then it's trickling down to marketing. That's not Mm. what product-led growth is. right? (laughs) Uh, It's also not like, okay, it's only for the new startups. It's not for like, you know, like the larger companies and Mm. stuff like that. Again, big false. We are doing this conversation on a $80 or $100 billion company, Zoom, Mm -hmm. which has grown through product led growth right yeah, yeah. Um, so the fundamental thing of product led growth to understand it's it's a it's a business model that focuses on you know like the primary driver of acquisition uh, conversion and expansion to be the product itself yeah, um, yeah. and the moment you understand that that just simplifies things a lot more
0: yeah that's so true you know thinking about it you know, how many of us today buy products without even trying it out, right? It's just become second nature for us to mm-hmm. not accept anything unless we've actually tried it out. So
1: you're not going to trust it, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the level of trust that you have via product-led growth is just yeah. so much better that the conversions yeah. are just like, it, it's a delta uh, effect that happens with the users.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And then that also means that when you are designing a product-led growth strategy, you need to design flows within your product that actually sort of, get your user to derive value from it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, when we go back to talking about an aha moment, uh, you know, getting your user through that happy path and to the aha moment, um, it becomes very important to not just build a great product or a great feature, but like we said, to kind of drive users to, through, you know, to derive value from it. Um, do you think nudges play an important role in this? What are your views around, and, and have you seen nudges really help users, you know, get to their aha moments quickly Hmm.
1: interesting this one is a little controversial (laughs) so um i think nudges were made with the right intent uh Hmm. but just like anything that was made with the right intent was not used properly where it's not just anytime i enter a product my product tour starts and the first thing i'm doing is clicking it off right yeah i didn't even ask for it but i think the application is wrong. The uh, feature itself isn't like, I, I really believe that nudges is a super powerful tool, uh, mm. but only, and the way I have seen it work very well. So let's start mm. with the first thing, right? Number one, uh, the ideal scenario is that mm. your product uh, should not need any nudges. That's the yep. super ideal scenario, right? Yes. Um, but just like all ideal scenarios, that also means that you know your product does not need any FAQ section, it doesn't need educational content, it doesn't need support, It does, because it's so perfect, right? So then yes. it doesn't. It shouldn't need anything. Yeah. <laughs> so that's with that out of the way, um, yeah. let's assume that this is something that the user actually needs, right? Mm. Uh, and hence you've built that product feature out. The way mm. I look at nudges and the most impact it can drive is through progressive disclosure. And now what that means is um how can we nudge the user or Ooh. educate the user when it is actually valuable for them not when yeah. we want them to take that action right uh, inside yeah. the user flow itself if there's a small specific feature that's launched out and you know if we look at the offline world they've Ooh. done it pretty well when you go to an airport and you're trying to find a gate right it's not going to tell you at the start gate number 11 is seven lefts eight U-turns and six, I don't know, uh, zigzags away, right? Uh, oh, it's going to tell you as and when inside the product flow itself, that hey, you got to do this and that, yeah. right? Uh, the user's already in that flow and you're just helping them go through it, right? Yeah. Uh, so progressively Absolutely. using nudges is, I think, a great way to kind of drive product adoption.
0: I'm going to steal that, Udyan, for my, for my conversations with other folks because <laughs> the one question we get so often is, hey, if i really need nudges that means i've done something wrong in building my product mm. right i we get this so often i right. think that's a very good way to put it
1: yeah i think it's i mean uh, mm. this, this is a contrary to that also like this counter it does not mean that design a bad flow and then fix it to the <laughs> <laughs> product this thing right yeah uh, yeah
0: but yeah. yeah yeah awesome awesome um very interesting thoughts like i said you know um the way we sort of also look at it is um think of it like somebody who's sitting next to you and guiding you to take a next action, which may be beneficial for you. I'm not saying you want to do it because I'm asking you to do it. Um, it's, it's you know sort of the same paradigm that you also spoke about. Um, but let's um, let's try and um, quickly move this and ask you a couple of more very, very quick questions. Now I'm going to keep this a more, <laughs> uh, on a more holistic level. Let's talk okay. a little bit more about the growth space. Mm-hmm. Um, again, four or five very rapid questions for you. Give me the first answer that comes to your mind. Mm -hmm. All right. We start. Um, Is the no code or low code phenomena all a hype? Yes or no?
1: Not at all. Uh, And I I want to deep dive into this. Uh, No code and uh, like no code tools, essentially what they allow you to do is they allow you to deliver whatever experience that you're trying to deliver to your users. Mm -hmm. Instead of six months, it's going to allow you to do it now. So you can learn, iterate and keep building better for sure the best and ideal way is to build everything in house. Right. And yes. but as you when you keep learning and towards doing that, no mm. code, low code is definitely the bridge to that. I think mm. MVPs, etc, should definitely be on low code, no code, for sure.
0: Interesting, interesting. Uh, but then what's your favorite no code, no code tool of all times, you know,
1: <laughs> I think I'm going to be super biased here. Uh, but <laughs> I, I can't tell you how much of a lifesaver, Razorpay payment pages has been like, and oh wow, payment yeah. pages in general, like I I'm not even kidding when I say this for growth as well. Like when I'm yeah. a merchant for Razorpay payment page has been such a big life savior, we could have integrated the payment gateway by the end. We do have the, te- like, it's just a simple integration for us, but mm. payment page itself performs so much better as a checkout page for us mm-hmm. that mm. we just haven't used PG. We just use the payment page. So that's definitely my favorite no code tool.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Uh, extension to this one no code tool that actually you use on a daily basis and that's really making your life super simple.
1: Airtable, for sure Airtable is one hundred percent that tool
0: i agree i agree okay the next one controversial your take on growth hackers in one single word uh,
1: no comments <laughs> no comments.
0: i kind of saw that coming
1: <laughs> i think we'll have to censor a lot <laughs> yeah. from this podcast so yeah no comments
0: no no absolutely take taking that with a pinch of salt and my last question um What would be that one resource? It could be a video, a blog, um, it could be a course or a newsletter that you would highly recommend to budding product and growth folks or even product and growth enthusiasts out there.
1: It's very hard to choose one, right? Hmm. Because everyone is good at something, but something that changed my outlook, Hmm. uh, right? I think the YC startup growth library, uh, it's phenomenal. Hmm. Uh, it has everything around product growth or in startups in general, and yeah. it's a gold mine.
0: Wow. Interesting. Wow. Thanks for that. Udi. And I think these, um, this is going to be a very, very, um, uh, you know, reward section. A lot of people are going to take a lot of insights from this. Uh, but that brings me to my like Uber final question to you. Um, you've been a marketer, you've been a product owner. Now you're leading and growing, uh, building growth teams rather, um, over the past eight, nine odd years, you've seen it all. You've seen all these multiple roles. What is that one thing that still keeps you going? What is it that keeps you coming back, um, you know, and and really working towards uh, more in this space?
1: That's an interesting question. That's a really good question, actually. Um, I think not just you, but I think even my my friends ask me that question. <laughs> why, <laughs> why do you keep working so much, man? Um, but I think uh, I I haven't. Uh, found a space inside mm. of like working right which allows you to directly impact the growth of a company so much more as uh, when you're in a growth team it's it's the thrill of actually going into an unknown unknown uh, mm. doing problem identification and then coming up with hypothesis experimenting solutioning and just it's just sort of a roller coaster right that i don't see anything else giving me Um, and I think that's what stuck with me and hopefully it does for the near future as
0: well yeah we hope so too wonderful Um, brings me to the end of the podcast thank you so much Udiyan it's been truly insightful I know I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners would have too Um, and we look forward to more such tidbits from you Uh, you know as as much information as you can give us we are always ready to take Um, thank you so
1: much Mary thank you so much uh, to you the Netco team uh, Miriam as well and, um uh, you know, I think one thing is like uh, they were really good questions. I would definitely say I've done a bunch of podcasts, but great job on the questions. Uh, it was uh truly totally fun. It did not feel like we've spent whatever uh, time over here, right
0: uh, Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot. on behalf of NetCO, on behalf of all our listeners, um wish you all the best for your cycling expedition, <laughs> um wishing you all the best with uh, with GrowthX as well, and of course with with the great work that you're doing at RazorPay. Um, here's wishing all our listeners a very happy very safe rest of the 2021 hopefully we can all get back to doing what we love Um, take care, thanks a lot thank you so much